Well, thank you, TJ and Karen, for that wonderful update. Indeed, it is thrilling to hear of God reaching hearts all over the globe. And the same gospel that the Lord used to awaken your heart and awaken mine is a gospel that's being translated into languages and being spoken by people of many tongues. And God is using that to call a people unto himself. All praise to him who is indeed Lord over all. So it just causes our hearts to praise our Savior even more. And I also want to just say a word. Uh, Brother Andy mentioned it in his prayer, but we indeed praise God for the reversal of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. Hallelujah to our Lord that that is no longer the precedent in our land. We know that the fight is not over. It is not that uh, babies are no longer being killed in our country. And so we continue to pray and continue to work that that would be the case and that God's standard of righteousness would be upheld, uh, or would be fought for and would translate into laws. But as you know, there is a battle over the soul of our nation right now as uh, whether we will follow righteousness or wickedness. And so we battle on our knees and we battle in many other ways as well that we might see righteousness gain over wickedness. But we want to praise God for the progress and for what transpired just a few days ago. Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we ask that you would please assist us as we open your word. We thank you that we are able to hear your voice through the scriptures, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Enable distractions, sin, and other obstacles that would stop our ears, that they might be done away with, that we might listen with fresh hearts this morning, that we might hear the voice of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Last week in our study of Luke, we saw Jesus tell the Jewish people to prepare for the coming kingdom. Of course, they, as the Jewish people, didn't think they really needed to prepare. They thought because they were Jewish, the kingdom was going to come and they would participate. But Jesus gave him a stern warning to say that the door is narrow to enter that kingdom and that not many would be able to enter it. Jesus declared that his kingdom would dominate the globe even if it didn't look like it at the time. But when that kingdom would come and when the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be feasting there in the kingdom, that there were spiritual requirements in order to enter that kingdom. And Jesus gave this word of warning to the Jewish people that they needed to prepare in order to enter that kingdom. Not many people would deny themselves, would take up their cross and follow Christ. Not many people would submit to the lordship of Christ and be his disciple. And so he told these first century Jews that they were going to miss out of the promised kingdom, but the Gentiles from the north, south, east, and west all over the globe would flock and would partake in this kingdom. They who thought they were first in line to enter would be cast out. 
where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it's because of this rejection that Jesus has faced time and again throughout his ministry of the, the Jewish nation failing to accept and to believe in him. Jesus knows that he is headed to the cross. Luke chapter 9 verse 22 says that he said to his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In light of that, it then says in Luke 9 verse 51 that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was headed to where he would die. And so we could say that ever since that declaration, Jesus has been traveling, journeying, ministering, and teaching all in the shadow of the cross. But I believe in our passage this morning, Luke 13, verses 31 through 35, we get a glimpse into the heart of our Savior as he stands in that shadow. As he particularly is perceiving the cross that looms before him. What is on his heart? What goes on in his head? What was he thinking? Our passage this morning unearthed some of that intention and desires of Jesus. And it shows us two different sides of the God-man. On one hand, we see a brave, God-fearing man who's unfazed by the opinions of others, even the people in power. On the other hand, we see a broken-hearted man who is overcome with grief because of the sin of his fellow countrymen. And all of this is wrapped up into the man that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. His impending death in Jerusalem brought out these two different aspects of the inner life of Jesus to the surface in our verses this morning. And so let's read those verses now. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 13 beginning in verse 31. It says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our text this morning, these verses that we just read, will reveal two aspects of Christ's heart as he stands in the shadow of the cross. And as we meditate upon the heart of Christ this morning, as we see it revealed in these verses, may we look to him with greater wonder, greater worship, and greater awe for all that he did for our salvation. First, our text reveals that Jesus' heart is determined to complete his mission. His heart was determined to complete his mission. And we see this in verses 31 through 33. Verse 31 begins with a curious situation where some Pharisees come to give him some news, to warn him. He, they say that Herod 
wants to kill you, so get away from here. The Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas. We've met him before in Luke. And it's important that we clarify the Herods because there are six Herods that are mentioned in the New Testament, and they're all a part of the same family, and so it can get very confusing. I'm not going to untangle all of the Herod dynasty for you uh, this morning, but simply to say that uh, Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you'll remember from the Christmas story, is the Herod who looked, was looking to kill Jesus and ordered the killing of all baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. He died and he handed his kingdom over to his sons, one of which was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had jurisdiction over Galilee in the north and Perea, which is east of the Jordan River in which is modern-day Jordan today. Luke chapter 3, we read about this Herod, was the one who took his brother's wife. John the Baptist scolded him and denounced him for such an action, and he was then put in prison by Herod Antipas. We learn in the other Gospels that he ended up beheading John. And then in Luke 9, it says that Herod begins to hear this murmurings about this Jesus. And he wonders, is this John the Baptist resurrected from the dead? Like, I thought I killed him. And now I'm hearing about this prophet that's going around and saying very similar things. And so it says there that he wished to see Jesus. But we're in a different place now. He doesn't just want to see Jesus. He's looking to kill Jesus. No doubt the popularity of Jesus is causing a stir. It may be reminding him of the stir that John the Baptist caused. And the righteousness of Christ and the truth that he preached, no doubt, probably got under Herod's skin. He was irked by one other prophet preacher, and no doubt he doesn't want to be disturbed by another one. And so it says here that he wants to kill Jesus. Now, this is important because Jesus, if we piece the gospel records together, seems to be in Perea, which is, again, on the east side of the Jordan River. And so, therefore, he's in the domain of Herod Antipas. Herod could kill him if he so desired. Now, we don't know the reason exactly, but again, he's, something has prompted him to have Jesus silenced. Now, this scenario itself presents some curious questions. You're like, why in the world are Pharisees trying to warn Jesus? I thought the Pharisees are like the villains of the Gospels. Like, they're always trying to do things against Jesus. This seems to be trying to help him. Were they in league with Herod? Were they uh, actually trying to help him, or were they trying to trick him? Were they laying a trap for him? And in one sense, we can't fully know. We don't have an insight into the motivations in this text, but I believe there are some plausible explanations. Now, some have suggested that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to leave Perea, to cross the Jordan River and go over to Judea, where the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin have jurisdiction, and therefore they can actually deal with Jesus as they want to. It's possible, but I think these... I, I think what best lines up with the evidence is that these, there's a, these Pharisees do have some sort of legitimate concern for Jesus. I mean, they don't necessarily like Herod themselves. And as we know in other parts of the Gospels, there are some Pharisees that do believe. 
There's a few, and they're often hidden, but there were some that took Jesus' message to heart, such as Nicodemus in John chapter 3, or Joseph of Arimathea. And so it seems that they are legitimately concerned for Jesus. They're giving him this word, and they are trying to save his life if it would be helpful. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 32. He doesn't attack the Pharisees. Again, if they were trying to trick him and they were doing something insidious, you'd expect him to kind of turn against the Pharisees. But he doesn't. He directly addresses Herod and he tells these Pharisees, go and talk to Herod. Now, did the Pharisees have a special in with Herod? We don't know. Was this somewhat... Uh, you know, go tell him, I, not as if they actually could go walk into his presence if they had a special relationship, but just kind of a rhetorical go and tell. Well, either way, the, the Pharisees fade out of the picture and Jesus now focuses on Herod. And no, you'll notice that his reply begins by calling Herod what? A fox. A fox. Now, commentators debate about what Jesus meant by fox. It could mean, you know, what we typically understand fox to be is a sly deceiver, right? Scheming and trying to deceive. It could, it's also used in other places to just describe a worthless fellow. Someone who's insignificant, has no majesty, has no honor, and just kind of a worthless person. Or, it could pick up a connotation found in the Old Testament of a, of a jackal or a fox who's there bringing about destruction. We don't really know exactly what Jesus meant by it, but it was certainly a, a term that was one of derision. Jesus was not complimenting Herod. He was definitely showing that uh, he did not think highly of this man and is calling him out for his sinful ways. Now, what does Jesus want relayed to Herod? Notice that he says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. What Jesus wants transferred back to Herod is this, that Jesus is going to continue his mission and not only press on and continue with it, but he's going to actually complete it. He's going to continue and complete what he set out to do. Because he's not dictated by someone else's timetable. He is running upon a divine timetable. He's running upon God's schedule, not Herod's. And there's nothing Herod can do to stop it. It says particularly that he's going to continue his casting out of demons and his bringing about cures to diseases. This has been a staple of Jesus' ministry, declaring his uh, sonship as the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. And he says he's going to do this on his own schedule. Now the phrase that we find in verse 32 that says, today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course, seems to be parallel with what's in the next verse after it. That he says, uh, uh, verse 33, uh, today and tomorrow and the day following. They're both very similar kinds of phrases and it doesn't seem to refer to actual 24-hour days that Jesus is saying in three 24-hour days I'm going to be uh, finishing my course. I'm going to be dying on the cross, in other words, in three days. And so it's, it seems that these words refer to a definite amount of time that Jesus has in his mind. There's, there's, a, there's a locked-in amount of time and it's, and it's relatively short. 
It's not spread out over a long period. He's, he's saying it's very close at hand that I'm going to finish my course. His course here that he's going to finish is his reason for living, his mission in his ministry. He has this mission that his father gave him. His father sent the son to be the savior of the world and he is going about that mission as he ministers in Israel. And he says that nothing is going to stop him from continuing and completing that work. The word finish here means to fulfill or to complete or to perfect. In other words, there's a finish line, a climax of Jesus' life and he says, I am going to get there. And Herod, there's nothing you can do about it. There's no threat you can make. There's no work you can do that will not get me to that finish line. Even though Herod wants to end Jesus' life, Jesus will not be deterred. He will not be cut short from reaching that finish line. God, not Herod, will determine the day of Jesus' death. And Jesus continues to make that point in verse 33, saying, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem he says I must go on it is a divine necessity I must he has a mission he's on and he must carry it out he must press on again this will be a mission that will be very soon completing today tomorrow the day following of course, we today who read this after the cross and after the resurrection recognize some sort of illusion, maybe some sort of parallel with his three days in the grave. It's not clear that the original audience would have understood that. Jesus knows that he won't die by the hands of Herod in Perea, or Galilee for that matter. He must die in Jerusalem. He stakes it on a truism that a prophet cannot perish away from Jerusalem. Now, this is nowhere stated in the Old Testament that a prophet must die in Jerusalem. It's not some sort of law that Jesus has to obey. What he's doing here is highlighting two things. One is the centrality of Jerusalem in the life of the nation. The centrality of Jerusalem in the life of the nation. And we're going to see that as we go through all of our verses this morning. Everything significant must take place in that capital city. But the second thing Jesus is doing is that the history of uh, the nation revealed that Jerusalem was often the site of God's, the murder of God's representatives. As one Puritan commentator said, it was the slaughterhouse of the saints. Not only did Jesus know where he was going to die, but he knew it would happen in Jerusalem. And so in these verses, friends, we see a Savior who is determined to move ahead and march forward on his mission. Do you see the steady resolve of Christ? Do you see him in the face of opposition who has his eyes laser focused on what he came to do? Not being sidetracked, not being dissuaded, not being fearful. In the face of a threat upon his life, he did not waver. He did not panic. He continued entrusting himself to his father, remained resolute towards the finish line. Friends, it's because Jesus was determined to finish his mission that you and I are here today. We have salvation because Jesus set his eyes on the cross and he continued to march steadfastly toward it. 
Like a brave warrior, he charged into the fight, knowing full well what the cost would be, and yet with full courage, he went to the cross. And we stand humbled before a Savior with such courage. This month marks the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. The Allied offensive into Nazi-occupied Europe. That day, that attack is both awe-inspiring and awful. It was both one of the greatest days and one of the worst days in history. It was a day of life, but it was also a day of death. And I don't know about you, but when I see pictures or reenactments in movies of the soldiers that went forward that day, who ran into the jaws of death on those beaches to conquer evil, to bring about good where there was great evil being committed. It gives me chills and I am humbled by the bravery and the sacrifice of those men. But friends, for as awe-inspiring as that is, what Jesus our Savior did was far more awe-inspiring. He was facing a greater foe than Nazi Germany. It was Satan and death itself. Jesus wasn't just simply trying to liberate a section of land. He was liberating multitudes of humanity through all of human history. Jesus was fighting for a greater good than those troops. He was fighting for eternal life and peace. Jesus also paid a higher price than the allies he paid with his perfect and holy life. He was obeying a greater commander. He obeyed his Father in heaven. Jesus did what no one else can do. He looked into the literal jaws of death and he went forward to conquer it with steadfast determination. And so church, we bow before our Savior. We humbly worship him because of his determination. He was no weak martyr who fell into enemy hands. He is the strong and mighty God who conquered the foe so that he could save his enemies such as you and me. And he finished it. Oh, he finished it completely. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. His course was complete. He paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. Nothing else needs to be done. It is finished. He finished the course which he set out to do. And so we cannot miss the beautiful determination of our Savior described in these passages, these verses. So the first aspect of Christ's heart that we see here is his determination. He was determined to complete his mission. The second part of his heart that we see, the second aspect, is that Jesus was downcast over his people's obstinacy. He was downcast over his people's obstinacy. And we see this in verses 34 and 35. The text changes, but only slightly. Verse 33 ended with Jerusalem, and that's exactly where verse 34 picks up. In fact, it mentions Jerusalem twice. And so in the text, Jerusalem is listed three times in a row between verses 33 and 34. Jesus turns, though, from a, a steadfast 
resolution to the cross, to expressing his sorrow and lamenting over Jerusalem. This, these verses are also quoted in Matthew chapter 23, and, and it's unclear whether this is a, a separate event in which Jesus declared this lament in two separate places, or whether this is Luke moving it here for his editorial purposes. I tend to think that this is Jesus stating it here and then also in Matthew 23. But as we see here, Jesus, you, you could read the earlier verses about going to Jerusalem and particularly having a prophet that is going to perish in Jerusalem and you could think that Jesus is launching into conflict and those two sides of the conflict are opposed to one another, are in conflict and that Jesus would be uh, antagonistic against the Jews. But Jesus here reveals his open heart. That he is not antagonistic towards them. He does not hate his fellow Jews, but rather he has a tenderness and a compassion for these people. He's brokenhearted over their sinful stubbornness. And so, as we look at Jesus' lament here, we're going to look first, verse 34, about the indictments that he gives, and then verse 35, the predictions that he gives. Two indictments, two predictions. First, the indictments, verse 34. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Jesus here begins with a double call to Jerusalem. This, this communicates his emotion. As we saw in chapter 10, he, he spoke to his friend Martha and said, Martha, Martha, you're busy about many things. Here he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's communicating earnestness and intensity of his emotion. It reveals his compassion and his love. Jerusalem is mentioned, not necessarily, I think, because Jerusalem itself and the people that live there are to blame, but Jerusalem as a representation of the entire nation. Jerusalem is the capital city, and therefore it is a stand-in, a substitute to speak of all of the Jewish people, not just the religious leaders, but particularly of the entire nation. As one old commentator put it, in one sense, all Israelites were children of Jerusalem. And so Jesus first indicts Israel for its history of ill treatment of God's prophets. He describes it as a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now the Old Testament doesn't record many prophetic martyrdoms, uh, many times in which the prophets are slaughtered in Jerusalem. Mentions famously Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24. We have a record of Jeremiah's uh, threats upon his life. Tradition has it that he was ultimately stoned. Tradition has it that Isaiah was sawn in two. But Jesus' point is that the nation of Israel rejected and slew the prophets that God sent to her. Those prophets were not listened to and respected. They were killed and turned aside. 
And of course, Jesus knows that they are about to kill God's greatest prophet. That history of killing prophets is going to culminate in his own death upon the cross. Jesus knows the cross is coming. Scholar Alva J. McLean stated it this way. He said, this city, which should have been a blessing to all nations, is now designated as the habitual murderess of the prophets and the stoner of the messengers of God. And she was about to climax the long history of iniquity with the murder of her own divine king. Jesus then expresses his grief over Israel's unwillingness to come under the Lord's protection and care. Notice the emotion as he cries out, How often, how often would I have gathered you together, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? He cries out in emotion and desperation and grief. But by Jesus stating this, he was identifying himself as the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God who, was, who came over Israel. Jesus says, I am that God. And I, in my ministry, sought to continue what the Lord was seeking to do all through your history. This imagery is found throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz tells Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I believe this statement was then picked up by a descendant of Ruth, David, the psalmist, as his words are found throughout the Psalms of speaking of being, finding refuge under the wings of God. He prayed in Psalm 17, verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God, that children of mankind take refuge under in the shadow of your wings. And there's other references as well found throughout the Psalter of this idea of finding refuge in the sh shadow of the wings of God. And so when Jesus says he sought to gather Israel, I believe he's claiming to be that God that David looked to. Again, McLean writes, Christ reveals himself here as the God of Israel who, through the centuries of Old Testament history and to that present hour, had striven for the good of the nation and through Israel for the ultimate good of all mankind. Jesus had been continuing this work through his ministry, showing his love, seeking to call Israel to repentance. Come under me, come embrace me, repent and believe in me. Find refuge under me as your Messiah, as your King. He desired to save Israel. His heart was for their redemption. That's why he came. And that's what he endeavored to do, he says. And yet, what does it say? They were unwilling. He says, I how often I would have done this, but you were not willing. They rejected him. They spurned him. 
Friends, do you see the grief upon his heart? Do you see that he didn't just coldly look at the unbelief of Israel and walk, in, walk away and say, good riddance? No. He, his heart is broken over these people that he's labored so hard with, that he's sought to redeem and to save. He tried, he labored, he gave them everything he had, and yet they were unwilling to trust and believe in him. Their hearts were hard. And so this reminds us of a truth of salvation that author J.C. Ryle says this way. He says, The will of poor, hardened, unbelieving man and not the will of Christ is the cause why sinners are lost forevermore. Christ would save them, but they will not be saved because they would not have Christ for their Savior. And so we cannot miss here in this text the open-heartedness of Jesus to those who do not believe, his grief over unbelief. We must see his compassion for sinners. See, his heart is that all would come to repentance and faith. His message of love, his message, his call to repentance and faith goes out to all, that all would see and would turn to him. That is his heart. And folks, just as Israel was responsible for their unbelief, so too everyone today is responsible for the choice that they make in regards to Jesus Christ. We can preach the gospel. We can tell the truth. We seek to communicate the words of Christ to all. And yet it is up to each person to decide what they will do for Christ. You can read about him in the Bible. You can hear his messages, but it takes an act of faith and repentance upon in each person to believe upon Christ. It takes personal action. And so I ask you this morning, do you have a willing heart? Do you, are you willing to turn to Christ? To hear his call? To gather sinners such as you and I together? Will you find refuge in his wings? Refuge from a wrath to come that we all deserve? Will you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior? J.C. Ryle again says, Let the truth before us sink down into our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Let us thoroughly understand that if we die in our sins and go to hell, our blood will be our, on our own heads. We cannot lay the blame on God the Father, nor on Jesus Christ the Redeemer, nor on the Holy Ghost the Comforter. The promises of the gospel are wide, broad, and general. The readiness of Christ to save sinners is unmistakably declared. If we are lost, we shall have none to find fault with but ourselves. And friends, I pray that you would not remain in that state of unbelief and hard-heartedness this morning. That you would see the open-heartedness of Christ, the compassion Jesus has, and you would come to him this morning. Recognize that you are not able to save yourself. That the... the, the the wrath that is you deserve, you are not able to save yourself from. You must find refuge in the shadow of the wings of Christ. John 10.10 10 says that Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. John 6 says that whoever comes to him, he will no wise cast out. Jesus 
will embrace you. He is willing to save. But are you willing to have him for your savior? Well, from Jesus' broken heart, he issues these indictments against Israel. But then in verse 35, he turns to give some predictions. And this is where we'll end this morning seeing the predictions of Christ in verse 35. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken. The house referenced here is the house of Israel and there's represented, as we've already seen, by Jerusalem and, and very likely the, 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 the house of God that's there in Jerusalem, the temple. Jesus says the house of Israel is forsaken by God. Jesus here quotes from Jeremiah. Two verses, particularly Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7, where it's the Lord says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. And then also Jeremiah 22, verse 5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. These words describe Yahweh's declaration to the generation of, that lived through the exile. That generation of Israelites that had disobeyed the Lord and were sent into exile because of their disobedience. God cast them out of the land. Now here in the Gospels, Israel's back in the land. They're there in Jerusalem, in Israel. And so you say, oh, they've returned. They're out of exile. But friends, these, this verse where Jesus applies the very same denunciation that God gave that past generation that went into exile, and he gives it here presently to that, his generation, declares that Israel is still in exile even here. They are still in spiritual exile. They have not returned. They have not returned to the Lord their God. They remain in exile. And Jesus came presenting himself as the new mess, uh, uh, Mosaic figure. He's the new Moses, the new prophet like Moses who could lead them out of this exile. He could lead them to the eternal promised land and yet they refused him. And so judgment is coming. The temple will be destroyed. The people will be scattered. And this desolation came in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And so the first prediction is of Israel's destruction. But the second is, is of Israel's redemption. Look at the final phrase of verse 35. I tell you, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are several things we need to note about this statement. Number one, Jesus knows he's going away, right? He says, you're not going to see me until. There's going to be a, a leaving part. And as we come to find out, it's leaving earth. He ascends to heaven. He is no longer present upon the earth. But notice number two, that he promises he will return to earth. He says, you will not see me until. In other words, this is a promise. You are going to see me again. I am coming back. But notice number three, what's the condition upon his return? He will not return until Israel repents and believes. He says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The you 
has to refer to Israel all the way through this statement. I tell you, you will not see me until you say. It's the nation of Israel, nation of Israel, nation of Israel. Now, it's not the same individuals among the nation of Israel, but it's still the nation of Israel. In this case, it was that present generation, and we know that it's still yet a future generation of Israelites who will say this very declaration as they see Christ when he returns. And they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah prophesied that they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will weep for him as they weep for an only son. They will rep repent from their unbelief. And these words will be upon their lips. These words from Psalm 118, verse 26. They're going to rejoice as they see their conquering king enter Jerusalem in a way that they are not rejoicing here in this passage. This promise of repentance and restoration is a reiteration. It's not new. It's found throughout the Old Testament. But what's significant is that Jesus affirms what the Old Testament expected. It taught a repentance and a restoration of Israel, and Jesus here reaffirms that. That yes, Israel is going to repent in that final day, and one day uh, a collection of Jews will be able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as they see Jesus Christ. And so even here in the midst of great sorrow and judgment, there is still hope. All is not lost. The end of the story is not yet written. God will save the Jewish nation as part of his grand plans of redemption to save a people for himself across all the nations. And so in conclusion this morning, we have seen the heart of Christ revealed. We've seen his single-minded determination as he goes to the cross. And we've seen his broken heart as he sees people who are going to put him on the cross. And so our takeaway this morning is that there is no one else worthy of our love and our devotion. There's no one else who is able to save us. There is no one else for which the consequences for rejecting are so great. And so we must look upon Christ with love, with worship, with adoration, and embrace him as our savior and find the refuge that our soul needs. Let's pray that God does that for us this morning. Our God, we thank you for this word this morning, hearing of the heart of Christ, of his determination to go to the cross, and of his broken heart for those who reject him. Father, we praise you for the salvation that we have through Jesus. That we who believe have had our eyes opened. That we are not lost and stuck in our unbelief. I pray, Father, that you would give us renewed joy this morning. That we are found in him. That we have been redeemed. And may you give us that joy of that salvation. That we know Christ and that we are hidden and safe in the refuge of his wings. It's in his name we pray, amen.